Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast, Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the perils of progressivism. And, and Richard, what we're going to do today is sort of lay out progressivism as it's being presented in sort of a policy context in 2016 by the Hillary Clinton presidential campaign uh, and others just because due to the somewhat unique nature of this campaign and Donald Trump being on the other side, we are not sort of hearing the same kind of close scrutiny of these policy proposals that we normally would. So today you, Richard, step into the breach for us on that front. And what so I'm your new surrogate presidential nominee. Thank you. <laughs> Indeed one you vote, are. I think I carry the party by storm. <laughs> Indeed you are. That, and uh, let me start you here because one of the things that's sort of interesting as you watch the Hillary Clinton campaign is that she has to sort of do this high wire act where she is embracing the things that President Obama has done for the most part thus far, uh, but also trying to break with them to some degree or say that she'll at least finish the work. So let me start you on the topic of economics and, and specifically the um, what progressives conceive of as the drivers of economic growth. I mean the the line that Democrats are pushing at the moment is that it was President Obama who saved us from falling over the cliff when it came to the financial crisis in the early days of his presidency in 2009 and that maybe we haven't made as much progress as they would have liked. But basically all you need to do is throttle up a little bit on the same kind of policies that progressives have been pushing for the last seven or eight years. What's your response to that? I'm, I regard that as complete incredulity, double down on failure. But let's start from the beginning. Uh, the financial crisis, which was a joint effort on the part of industry, which miscalculated the risk associated with portfolios, uh, with the Federal Reserve, which kept the interest rates uh, uh, too low, basing, encouraging people to bid up these things, with the various Fannie and Freddie situation buying bum mortgages, drove the system into deep distress in September of 2008. And by the time the president took over, that is Obama, it was over four months thereafter. And what did he do? He didn't stabilize the situation. That had been dug by the Bush team, maybe not perfectly, but at least done. And immediately he starts to go into the stimulus program and into ARA, of this very omnibus bill trying to figure out what to do with international trade. And those two things were separate decisions from the previous stuff, and both of them were very serious mistakes. Uh, you do not, in effect, simply announce that there's a blank card out there for infrastructure and not worry about how it's going to be controlled or spent. And what the president tried to do through that legislation was to make it less a technical exercise and more a political control issue uh, so that if your name is Harry Reid, you could make sure that one of the first things in the stimulus program is to build a road that gets the rich customers from Los Angeles into Las Vegas in order that they could better gamble. So uh, the fact that you call something infrastructure doesn't mean that you're building essential infrastructure. You can be building a road to nowhere or a road that is not needed is between two places. That was the first error. Second part of this thing is that they made a terrible mistake with respect to free trade because they put into place an American first kind of program 
which is you have to buy your various parts from the United States and get a permit before you could buy it from overseas. And here I would actually cite the same Paul Krugman, the man who wrote 35, 40 years ago about free trade. And what he was able to establish quite convincingly is that trade really works amongst industrial companies because you can make something in Germany that we can't duplicate in the United States. We then incorporate it into an American product that allows us to sell a superior good overseas. And the moment you start having these permits and these preferences, what you do is you kill the international market. It hurts the domestic front, then it also hurts everybody else. As they become poorer, the opportunities for trade across the board go down. Then, of course, what you do is you get the president pushing Obamacare. And, you know, this takes place a little bit later. Uh, but essentially what he does is he thinks he has a better ideas on how to run the exchanges. And what's so conspicuous about that is all of the learned people, starting with Zeke Emanuel, assume that all the standard rules of insurance about adverse selection and moral hazard don't apply to a program that they run, even if they apply to a program that a private company runs. And so they start putting this kind of thing together, and it really has an adverse effect on the labor markets, uh, because now if you give somebody under 30 hours, you're out from underneath various taxes associated with it. If you go to full-time labor, you're not. And if you then actually look at the composition of the insurance plan that they put together, it has a series of innovations so destructive that no voluntary plan is ever adopted many of the features which the Obama people seem to think to be de rigueur. So that's not going to do very much good. Then you go after the labor markets. And what happens is the standard line that is repeated time after time is that taxation and regulation don't do any harm to the way these go. Um, and so you get people saying what you really have to do is um, keep the taxes high and then invest in education. Well, you can invest in education. It's not going to solve the short-term difficulty that may yield fruits down the road. But again, it's just like infrastructure. How have you spent the money on education? And these guys, of course, are very systematically opposed to charter schools where you get much more bang for your buck and are much more favored of the kind of public schools with union domination, which you know, perpetuate monopoly profits and ruin the long-term educational prospects of kids themselves. So by the time you're into the middle of 2009, what the president has done is guaranteed that he's taken the slope of growth and turned it negative. And the reason I say this is the one and a half percent that's called positive under these circumstances really has to be deflated to take into account population increase. And also what it has to do is to uh, take into account the fact that there's still a little bit of modest inflation inside the system. So you're in basically a general no growth situation or very close to that. And the person who gets hurt the most is not the guy at the top who can play all sorts of financial gains, but the ordinary worker whose income consistently is declining in this period, not quite 1% a year, give or take, but that's close enough for purposes. And what they do is they don't take credit for reviving the economy. The comedy was the day after Hillary Clinton announces that, well, we got the automobile industry in shape, so everything is well. The aggregate growth figures, figures which are the most accurate figures to look at, show 1.2% growth, which is essentially steady state given the two factors that I've mentioned. You said there a second ago, it's not the guy at the top who really takes the sting off of this. And it, there is an echo there 
of what has been sort of the progressive diagnosis for the past couple of years. Now, granted, I know you guys are getting there very different ways, but let me just play this out with you for a moment, Richard. This sure. sort of started with Barack Obama. Um, during this campaign, Bernie Sanders was really the one who's adopted it, and as his campaign came to an end, Hillary Clinton has appropriated some of this language suggesting that sort of the core economic problem in America is economic inequality and the concentration of wealth at the very top being kept away from people in the middle and even further down the ladder. How, what's your take on what has become the sort of Bernie Sanders, Hillary Clinton diagnosis? Of well, the first thing about it is they are under the illusion that if you could equalize the wealth across individuals, you could get the system back into a growth economy. And this is the same kind of mistakes that the progressives made in 1935 when they said what labor statutes will do is increase the purchasing power in the United States by raising the wages of ordinary labor. Uh, but the problem is really much different from that. If you're worried about growth, that's not a distributional question. It's an aggregate question. And the moment you decide to take the wealth away from one group and give it to another, one side has more purchasing power, but the other side has less. And there's absolutely no reason to believe that the coercion is going to get the money from the right places, uh, to the, from the wrong places into the right places. Uh, so what's going to happen is equality, in effect, will reduce the gaps, but it's much easier to level down than it is to level up. And once you level level down, it turns out that the egalitarian program turns out to be an anti-growth program, whether they like it or not. The second point, of course, is that these guys are absolutely hostage to the people at the top whom they love to denigrate. Right now, if you're taking approximate numbers, the top 1% earn, say, 20% of the total income in the United States, but it pays close to 40% of the taxes. If, in fact, you manage to reduce the amount that they earn, the amount of taxes that you're going to reduce is even greater and once you do that, the entire transfer mechanism in the United States is going to start to blow up. So essentially, these guys have to talk a good game about ending what's going to happen with respect to the very rich. But if it turns out that they can actually implement their program, say, with a 100% tax rate and a very high tax rate, which drives incomes down, all of the deficits for the transfer programs are going to be increased. Um, and then the next thing, of course, that one wants to know is that if you're talking about very rich people, they're the ones who have the expertise to drive innovation and investment. And what happens is these people think that the way in which you solve the chicken and egg problem between consumption and investment is put it heavily on consumption and neglect investment. But in the long run, you have to be able to balance them both off. And as a basic rule of thumb in all of these cases, you cannot get an aggregate measure to decide who should consume and who should invest. And the point about separable decisions is that people will take that path which maximizes their private welfare in light of what other individuals do. So there is an implicit coordination that takes place through market mechanisms. When you try to do this through government, you start fiddling around with the interest rates, which is, again, just another transfer payment. And the idea that somehow or other after fiddling with low interest rates now for the last seven or eight years, that keeping this in place is going to increase growth is sheer lunacy. The only way you will increase growth is to do the one thing that the progressives refuse to do, which is to cut back on regulation and taxation so that the velocity and volume of voluntary exchanges increases. And if you don't do this, everything else is rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. So let me read to you from sort of the progressive menu circa 2016 right now. These are the prescriptions that you're going to hear from Hillary Clinton that you're going to hear from a lot of mainstream Democrats about the things that need to happen on an economic basis for sort of ailing Americans. Minimum wage increase to $15 an hour. Expand Social Security. Paid family leave for employees 
debt-free college. Richard, if we live in a world where those four things are reality, d- describe the landscape for us. Oh, my God. Well, first of all, if you take the minimum wage and you try to raise it to $15 an hour, in New York City, it won't have too much effect because the wages tend to be above that, except on the youth portion of the market, particularly the minority youth portion of the market, where the unemployment rate at the current levels is already about 40% for both men and for women. So you're going to drive that up. I mean, Alan Blind, the writing today in the Wall Street Journal sort of assume that if you just gross up the minimum wage, there'll be more money in the pockets of people and nothing else will happen like automation and so forth. The truth about this one is the moment you make capital aware of the fact that labor is more expensive, it will shift into other capital. So iron, ironically, is poor workers can't diversify their strategies. They only have their labor to sell. They get hit very hard, whereas other people who can go overseas, change the mix of their investments and so forth, they get hit less hard. So what you can say about the minimum wage is that the greatest level of the distortions created are on the workers whom you're trying to protect. Uh, Then, I mean, take the next one. I don't care which it is, say Social Security. You know, the program isn't quite bankrupt yet, but it's certainly pretty close to the point where it's precarious. And as you see the increase in life expectancy, and if you continue to goose up the benefits, it is going to be under siege. Well, how do you stop that? Well, you try to raise the taxes on various kinds of income. But the moment you do that, it's a tax on employment, much like the minimum wage is going to drive people out of the labor market to some extent. And when people know that they're going to have to pay higher wages in order to get a given quantity of labor, the level of investment will start to fall as well. And what you have to do, therefore, under these circumstances is try to change the system. And what you probably want to do more than anything else is to basically figure a way gradually to uh, increase the age at which you could first acquire benefits from 65 to 66 or whatever else it turns out to be. They're not going to do that. Free college tuition, first thing that will happen is if everybody gets to go to school, it will simply degrade the value of the diploma. Right now, this is a very serious because most employers understand that many of the associate degrees, the community college degrees and so forth are worthless, so they discount them. If you take more people into the system and you stint on the quality that they're going to get, it's going to lower wages. What should you do instead? There are huge needs for various kinds of occupational jobs, electricians, computer technicians, one kind or another. Community colleges are always too little and too late on these things, and you have to abandon the Obama administration um, assault on the for-profit institutions, which generally, however poor their rates may be, they perform on average much better than the community colleges, and they generate tax revenues instead of do it. So instead of putting this thing into the public sector, what you want to do is to put it into the private sector in order to do that. Now, there's one other thing that you mentioned. I'm sure it was misguided. I just can't remember which one. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the one topic I think that uh, we haven't addressed yet from that earlier list was uh, paid family leave. A paid family leave. Again, this is just a classic illustration. Somebody sitting there in Washington knows that this benefit is worth more than its cost. Uh, if you look around, you will see that many people will say, God, you know, lots of businesses give paid family leave. If they can do it, why can't the others do it? Well, there probably are reasons why they can't do it. It depends upon the value of the workforce, the likelihood that certain people are going to come back, their ability to do part-time labor off the job, and firms will make all sorts of adjustments to keep women in the workforce, for example, far and above anything that is necessary or required under the anti-discrimination law.
laws. But what happens is if you get paid family leave in there, now you've got somebody running an accounting firm and somebody says, you know, I'd like to take off the month between March and April uh, to tend to my children at the time when the business has got the heaviest load. Or I'd like to take off Friday afternoons because it lets me go to the country. Uh, These kinds of situations are subject to real abuse. How serious is it? It's not for me to say so much better. And again, it's the sort of absolutely overweening arrogance on the part of somebody who could not run a business if her life depended upon it, telling everybody else how they ought to do that. And then, of course, they say, but they do it in Europe. That's my point. They do it in Europe. And if you look at the chronic unemployment numbers there and the stagnant wages and the political stuff, you realize that what is a good idea for a voluntary market is a bad candidate for government compulsion. All right. Thank you, Richard. Thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at Hoover.org. And you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit Hoover.org.